once the feedback's died down. Thank you. We, we've been, uh, as a church, following a series where we've been looking to answer the question, what sort of church do we want to be? What kind of church does God want us to be? As we continue our journey to become City Church, uh, I've just been in Bradley Stoke where we've done this uh, already this morning. So this is round two for me. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope you appreciate uh, just that we are part of one thing for the whole city and looking to seek God to shape us in the future. That's what God does by his Holy Spirit through his word. He brings shape to who we are and what we are together. And this is nearing the end of the series. There'll be one more in this series in the new year where Martin Charlesworth from Jubilee Plus is going to come and talk about a church uh, for everyone, a church for all kinds of people across the city, a diverse church, a church that reaches into all areas of society. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the subject of a church rich in God's grace. And it's always a debate when you're looking at the really vital parts of a church, of a sermon series in churches, to do you start with the key one or do you end with the key one? Well, I would say we could have started or ended with this one, but it needed to be a, a, a very prominent moment for us as a church because grace is the foundation for everything else that we do. Uh, so if you do a joining the church course, we begin with understanding God's grace. We have to get this bit right. Uh, if you don't get this bit right, nothing else works at all. So let's just begin with reading these verses, and then we'll get into it. Uh, so starting Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, you are by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. It is by grace you've been saved. I think I've said it a number of times here, but a famous theologian, a guy called J.I. Packer, said this, that grace is the key that unlocks the New Testament. If you are keen to understand what the Bible says, if you feel like that's something that would be good for you, then you need to have a very firm grasp of grace, says J.I. Packer. It doesn't make sense if you read it with any other paradigm in your head. It doesn't make sense. You need to grasp God's grace, to understand God's word. It is the message of the Bible. Start to finish, top to bottom, end to end, it's a message of grace a message of undeserved favor from God to humanity. God has given us something we didn't ask for, we didn't deserve. He's included us when we were excluded us. We were in previously where we were out. We were in one kingdom and he has put us into another. God has done this. Why? Because he loved us. Because he loves us. Uh, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, is one of the architects of the Reformation, said this, Grace is the, uh, no he didn't, he said this, it is grace alone that counts. God's kingdom is to be a kingdom of grace, belonging to those who are wretched and poor. We'll come back to why he said that those uh, participants of that kingdom are wretched and poor a little bit later. But that's what Martin Luther said, it is grace alone that counts. It's grace alone that counts. Philip, Philip Yancey, who's an American writer, says this, grace is the radical, outrageous, revolutionary aspect of the gospel, it is the unique and startling message of God's grace that divides the real Christian faith 
from all other religions. And actually, I would say this, it, it separates real Jesus-centered Christianity from other religions that call themselves Christianity as well. It's grace that does that. It is the message of grace that is unique to the Bible. It's unique to what Jesus came to do. Paul, in this passage, is writing to uh, a a city-based church. We heard from John last week something about this. It was a a church based in Ephesus, Ephesus being a pagan city, a city that worshipped uh, gods that weren't Jehovah, that weren't, they weren't Christian certainly at that time. And in the center of the city was a hill, and on the top of the hill was a temple to the, uh, to the goddess Diana. Diana was a sex god, and the whole city had that to it. The whole city had that kind of uh, atmosphere about it. And Paul writes to a church uh, that's uh, born in the middle of that, in the middle of that atmosphere, in the middle of that city. And you think there'd be all sorts of things you might write to a church that, uh, that standing over the city where this church is is a, a temple to a sex god. And you might think there's all sorts of things that Christians might want to say about that. But what does Paul write and talk about? God's grace. That's what he talks about. And we, we know actually from other uh, places in the Bible that grace changes us. Grace teaches us. And in Titus 2, it says that grace teaches us to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness. It actually changes and affects us. And we'll see why that's important in a moment or two. We might want to start with asking this passage a question. And it's a question that maybe we all need to ask ourselves at some point. Maybe you've already done this. Why do you even need God? Why do you need Him? You're here on a Sunday in a church building, been singing and praising a God. Why do you need him? What's the purpose? What's the point? Why God? Why not some other? Why not just a really good philosophy for life? Why not, why not just be nice to each other? Wouldn't that be a good thing to live with? Couldn't that be what we, we go with? Just be nice. Go, go, go home now. Go, go be nice to each other. Well, Paul starts this passage with the problem that he then goes on to explain the solution for And he starts the passage by saying this, As for you, you were dead. As for you, you were dead. Not a happy diagnosis, really. And actually, if you think about it, you might have to think about it, this is not a diagnosis that you're ever going to hear. Are you? No, of course not. Because if it's it's true, it's too late. You, You can't hear it, can you? If the doctor stands over you and says, Andy, Andy's dead now. I'm not going to be hearing that if it's true. <laughs> they, they were quicker in Bradley Stoke with that one. You had a whole extra hour, and anyway, never mind. <laughs> and Paul, of course, does, he's not really talking about physical death uh, specifically. He's saying this. He's saying, as for you, you're dead towards God. That's the problem. You're dead towards God. You don't know God. And it might be you this morning. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I, I, I like this, but I, I don't know what's going on. And the Bible says that's because you don't know God yet. You, you've seen other people who know him. You've seen the effect that God has on their lives, but you don't know him yet. And that needs to change, says Paul. It's, it's important that it changes. And Paul will go on to explain why it's important. And so Paul's diagnosis of the problem is this, you're dead towards God, you can't know him. And the state, the reason that he states that's caused that problem is this, he says you're dead in sin. Sin has separated you, it's, it's cut you off, it's actually meant that the state uh, that you are in is, is dead. And it's 
dead towards God. And immediately we start hearing things like sin. We, it's a bit concerning because we don't talk about sin much these days. But we might, if we were pushed, start kind of listing or, uh, or, or kind of racking up, well, I've done this, but I, I did that good thing. And I, well, I did this thing, and you know, I wasn't very proud of myself in that moment. And we start to come up with some sort of cosmic scale with the hope that the good things that we might have done would somehow outweigh the bad, and maybe that will make God happy. And that's sort of where a lot of people get to, that surely if I do some bad things, then some good things might cancel them out. And in some cosmic equation, maybe I'll get away with it at the end of the day. But Paul actually diagnoses the problem differently. He said it's not a matter of scales. It's not a matter of some cosmic kind of weighing act of, of, of weights and measures. Actually, it's about the state that you are in, even from birth. And in Romans 3, Paul writes to another church and says this, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All. And I'm like, oh my goodness, now I'm in there too. Because what we tend to do is we tend to think of people that are much worse than us as worthy of judgment. And then we get to ourselves and think, well, actually, you know, there's lots of reasons why I behaved that way. And uh, what we want is judgment for others and mercy for ourselves. That's how I my tendency in my own heart to think is, is yeah, I want, yeah, you know what, bad things, they should be punished. And uh, if you watch the news this week, you'd seen some of that happen. You think of some dictators being de- deposed. You think, wow, that's, that is a good thing. It's a good thing. And then sometimes if we turn in ourselves, we think, yeah, but, I, you know, I, I've, been, I've done some unpleasant things. Maybe not, I've not been a dictator of a small African country, but I've been, you know, pretty unpleasant to people. And actually, I think I deserve mercy and Paul just says, actually, it doesn't matter. A, a, a terrible sin, a horrendous act of inhumanity, or an attitude of heart, all have sinned. He dumps us all in the same category and says it's a problem for us all. And the way he describes it is a falling short. He said, you've fallen short of something. It's not you've just done something. You've fallen short of, of something that you should have attained to. And that is God's Glory. Now, if you, we've got any archers amongst us. I wonder if anyone's into archery. One. We've got one archer. <laughs> well, if you look this up in ancient archery, you'll find that this is where the word sin comes from, or this is where the one origin of the word sin. And that is that you have a target, and if you can imagine a field with a target uh, uh, at some distance, and the archers are, are lining up and pulling back the bow and aiming at the target. And then the arrow falls short of the target. It hits the grass in front and misses the target. And that's what Paul is saying here is the problem. He says, you've fallen short of a target that you should have hit. And if you want to know God, you have to hit the target. You have to hit the bullseye, in fact. And you've not just missed the bullseye, you've missed the whole, the whole target. The arrow's fallen short. So what's the target? What's the aim? Well, it's God's glory, says Paul. You've fallen short of his glory, of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his goodness. And then we start thinking, yeah, do you know what? Whatever I might have done, even if it was only a small thing, I've definitely done that. I've certainly find myself in that category. See, God is perfect and holy and pure. Absolutely. And by any measure, external, internal, whatever measure I might use to measure myself, I'm not that. And, I'm, and you're not either. So that's the problem that Paul is saying. That's the issue. I, I can't get close to that. I, I can't get close to a target if the target is God's holiness, his glory, his goodness. 
And this might be the biggest challenge of receiving the gospel or God's grace, is a a personal admittance that that's true. To appropriate grace, to grasp Jesus in faith for the first time, you have to come humble. You have to. It's the only way. You have to come admitting, hey, there's problems that I can't solve. I have fallen short. There's something missing, then I can't fix it. There's something that I've done that I can't find a way through. I need help. And this is why Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said, look, this kingdom, this kingdom of grace, it's for the wretched and poor. And it's why Jesus in Matthew 5 said, the kingdom of God belongs to who? The poor in spirit. Because to approach God at all, there has to be this attitude of heart that recognizes and agrees with the problem, a a sober assessment of one's own position before God. That's the starting point. Because all have sinned and fallen short. Because as for you, you were dead. All the time I come to God, and we're going to take communion a bit later, all the time I might come to that table with bread and wine with some sense of I've earned this, with some sense of I think God might be quite impressed with me, or at least maybe somebody else might be. All the time that I come like that, I've missed, I've missed it. I've missed the gospel. And I've missed something pretty spectacularly wonderful. And that is forgiveness and grace from God. But actually there's more than just falling short. In Ephesians 2, that passage we started with in verse 4, Paul says this, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. It actually gets worse. You think separation was bad enough. Actually, you're an object of wrath, says the Bible. Outside of God, away from his grace, that's our position. This is just the gospel, standard as it comes in the New Testament. And we know that, but we need to again visit it, and again and again visit it personally and corporately, because we need to understand his grace again and again. Because, listen, we live in an ungrace world, says Philip Yancey. The world, whether it be the education system, the, whether it be the legal system, whether it be sometimes our own relationships, whether it be capitalism, whatever it might be, socialism for that matter, it's not a grace world. It doesn't It doesn't revolve around what we're talking about today. It revolves around other things, about performance. It revolves around whether you have achieved something. And that's that's when the reward comes. That's not what grace is. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God does something. But this story of separation, this story of falling short goes further. Actually, the Bible says that this beautiful created world that God made, this cosmos that he created, which is incredible by any measure, by any measure. Light travels, we're told, at 186,000 miles per second, 300,000 kilometers per second. The nearest star we'll never reach. We'll never get there beyond the sun, beyond... These are impossible distances. Incredible galaxies. Just numbers that are beyond our ability to comprehend. And God it says, made it with a word. And then we find that something's gone wrong in the heart of the whole thing. And we intrinsically know it, and we try and fix it. And even with all our technology and our science and the wonderful gifts that those are to us, we can't fix the problem. And we're grateful for those things, and we thank God for them, and we work hard, those of us who work in those areas, to make life better for others. But the problem doesn't go away. 
it seems to elude us. And the Bible tells us something that we need to hear, that the problem's not out there to be fixed. The problem is in here to be saved. The problem is within. It's a problem of the heart. And that with all our cleverness and with all the wonderful things that we can do and see and achieve, we can't change the human heart. Only Jesus can do that in all the universe. And so we see dictators deposed and replaced and we celebrate, but we know that the problems still hound us. And ultimately what we find, as Paul says, that ultimately this is to be punished. And we said earlier, didn't we, that we rejoice in the punishment of wrongdoing sometimes. We feel that's right until it gets to me, until it knocks on my door, and then I want to be treated differently. And so we find ourselves stuck in a problem, separated from God, without hope, unable to respond, unable to meet a target that's an impossible standard, recognizing that the result of all this has caused problems, not just for me, but for those around me and those throughout the world. And what can be done? Who would rescue us? And of course, we know the message of Jesus is this, that he comes and says, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. What you could not do, I will do. I will change you. On the inside, I'll fix what couldn't be fixed. And Jesus is born with a message from God that says there's a better way to live, a different way to live. And he dies both to identify with our human state and to pay for our sin. And so God receives the wrath in, in himself. He takes on the punishment that we deserved. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we read this. For he made him who knew no sin. Jesus we read at Christmas, he came and he lived a perfect life. He was born in a stable, but he lived perfectly, never sinned. And it says, he who knew no sin, he became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he came, met all the demands, the righteous demands of God, and says, now I'll give that to you. I'll give it to you freely. All I have done, I'll give to you. All that I've won, I'll share with you. It sounds a bit like a marriage, doesn't it? It is a bit like that. I'll give it all to you. And you just have to ask. Just need to ask. And then Paul finishes this passage by saying this in verse 4 and 5, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. So we hear something of God's motive in, the, in all of this. Yes, you were far off. In fact, you were dead to God. And I, God says, will make you alive. I'll, it, you see, that's the wonder of God, that God sees hope even in death. It's great. It's, it's wonderful for us who struggle so often with death and difficulty. And all of us would sometimes, uh, or at some point, are going to face that ourselves. And we face it all the time. We don't like to talk about it. It's embarrassing. It makes, it, it's difficult for us to understand, but we need to know this. Jesus sees hope even in death. Even in death, he sees through it, and he sees it, and he saw it spiritually in you first. It says, even though you were dead, I can see something. I see something that I want to redeem and make beautiful again. And the way he does that, we read in, in Colossians 1, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in his inheritance. Many of us in the room right now are working hard 
to become qualified to do something that at the moment we're not allowed to do. Uh, many of us, probably more than half of us are doing that right now. We're trying to be qualified so we could achieve something that previously and up to this point and even now, you can't do it yet. Why? Because you're not qualified. And you're struggling with that, whether that's, uh, whether that's exams, whether that's professional qualifications. And, and you're working hard towards that end. And Jesus says this, in terms of you being able to get into God's presence, enjoy his Holy Spirit, be part of his family, I'm going to qualify you. I'm going to do it. You don't have to do any work at all. I'm going to do it on your behalf. And you find the graduation day comes and you walk on stage and you get the diploma and it's, it's done. He's done it. He qualified me. I passed. Not because of what I did, but because of what he is willingly doing on my behalf. He's qualified. He's always he qualified you to do. What are you qualified into now that you become alive in Christ? Well, total forgiveness for sin. Each of us would be dogged every day with things that we regret, things we wish we hadn't done. When people on the TV say, oh, I've got no regrets, I seriously doubt that that's true. <laughs> and the, right, the reason I seriously doubt it, because when I look in my own heart, I, I, so I regret things. It's, maybe it's honesty that needs to be changed. Yeah, of course we need to. I'll deal with those things. I'll deal with them. I'll pay the penalty for them. I'll cleanse you from shame and guilt. That's what he's qualified you to do. He's qualified you to share in his inheritance that you will be justified freely, just like you've never done it. Completely clean. Completely clean. I'll give you peace with God. I'll make you righteousness with the righteousness of God, he says. I'll make you a child of God, part of his family. You're in. You're part of the family. You have the family name. You carry the family traits. I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit and I'll never leave you. That's what he's qualified us to be in. I'll make you in Christ. So all the things true of Christ become true of you. I'll make you part of God's promised people for all time and forever. I'll go on filling you with my spirit, he says. I'll make you a new creature, something that wasn't there before. I'll create in you by my Holy Spirit and I'll give you an eternal hope and a future in God. He qualifies us to share in his inheritance and that is what grace is we need to understand that and live it for ourselves we need to enjoy it we need to when we come to communion in a minute or two's time we need to enjoy it for ourselves coming being thankful that's why it says just look in your own heart before you come to the table remember the process you've been through clear the decks lord thank you that you forgive me forgive me for all the other stuff Thank you that it's true. 1 John 1, if we've sinned, he's faithful and just, and he cleanses us, uh, forgives us, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's reminding ourselves of this process, and reminding ourselves of the process of being taken from the state of being dead before God, to being alive, to being in, to being part of his family. Reminding ourselves of that process reminds us of his grace. And now here's the question I want you to go with, really. What's a church look like that's doing that all the time? What's it feel like to be, what's the atmosphere of that kind of church? What's a community held together by God's grace? What is it like to be in there? Because that's the question we started with. Well, that kind of place is full of forgiveness. It's quick to forgive because it knows that great effort God has forgiven me. With great love, he's forgiven me. And he says, I choose to remember your sins no more. 
grace says, oh, that's, that's, the, that's how I want to be with others. It doesn't mean we just dismiss serious sin, but it does mean I'm quick to forgive. I don't hold grudges against others. That's not the kind of atmosphere of grace. And on top of that, and part of that is that we are uh, to be a church, a community that loves each other. Why? Because we know we're loved. I know he loved me first, so hey, I'm just brimming with it. I'm excited that I am loved. Who's not, who, who wouldn't want to hear that today? You're loved. Who wouldn't want to hear, I love you? Well, Jesus says it daily. Every day as we approach the table again in a moment to take communion, it's another reminder, I love you. I gave myself for you. Gave myself for you, says Jesus. It's a church that, where grace flows freely, where people put themselves at the back of the queue. Why? Because it doesn't matter where I'm in the queue, I'm loved by God. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a church where people are not fighting to have their voice heard because I've got something really important to say and you must hear me. Why? Because I'm so overawed with the love of God. A church which looks beyond its walls. Why? Because we've got something to say. That's, we, we live in an ungraced world. This is a precious, glorious message that changes the world and has done for thousands of years. It's a church that's happy in who it is in God. And I, I, years ago, I said, I don't think God's very interested in our happiness. I think he's more interested in our joy. Do you know what? I think I'm completely wrong. Jesus wants us to be happy too. He wants us to walk with a lightness of step, not based on whether you had a good meal or not, or whether your show's on back on Netflix, but based on something that is fundamentally true about who you are, comes from deep within. I know, I know God's for me doesn't matter what else happens what can man do what well, doesn't matter the circumstances of my life doesn't matter what might before what might happen why because God's for me a church like that is an exciting place to be a church that's generous all the things we've talked about in the last few months that's what a gracious church is like listen imagine that this that grace is the rich fertile soil where Christians grow where we grow up to be all that God has for us. That's what a church rich in grace is like. You find people flourishing all over the place. That's when grace is evident amongst them. Where other things are evident, you find it doesn't happen that way. People get shut down and shut up. People get sidelined and not listened to. Why? Because people are fighting their own corners all the time. But where grace is evident, everyone gets heard. Now, that's an ideal world. We're all fallen. <laughs> Sometimes our experiences are not that. But grace also says it's okay. It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to try and fail. That's okay. That's fine. If you do it because you love Jesus, it's fine. That's the church rich in God's grace. I'll finish with this as we come to communion in a moment. There's a parable Jesus told of two men who approached God and one approached expecting needing God's grace and one approached uh, expecting that God would be impressed it's a famous parable the parable of story of the Pharisee and the tax collector as we approach the table in a moment to take communion let's keep this in mind two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee the other a tax collector tax collectors were pretty low down in the pecking order unliked uh, in cahoots with the Romans and pretty much hated a Pharisee 
was a religious leader. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, thank you that I'm not like them. I'm coming with my own goodness. Or even like this tax collector. I think he imagined him pointing across the room at this poor man. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. I tell you, says Jesus, I tell you that it was this man rather than the other who went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. A humble man full of thanks to God. On the outside, it looks like one thing. On the inside, all heaven is breaking loose and he finds peace with God. Let's stand together. Let's have the band, can we please? I think over here and at the back we have, and over here too, and here we have tables with bread and wine on them. And as we begin to pray, uh, play and, and worship, why don't you just, either you can do two things. Either you can go to the table yourself and take some bread and wine, or you could grab a big chunk and take a cup and take it back with you to your row or to your, to your family or to a group of people and share it together. This is a family meal. That's what this is. This is for people who love Jesus. This is saying, I'm in, I'm part of this. Uh, you might want to do this and say, oh, I want in. This is my moment to approach God, maybe for the first time. And say, I want to be part of this now. And, this, and in doing this, in taking communion, I'm, I'm saying to Jesus, I want in, I want part of this. I need your grace. Like that humble man, recognizing, hey, I've, I'm full of sin, but I'm coming to you expecting forgiveness and asking humbly for it. So let's play and I will pray. And as soon as I've prayed... Let's start moving to the tables together. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done. We thank you for incredible grace. Thank you that it's poured out freely for us. Thank you, Jesus, simply by believing we can find peace with you, not having to do anything, not having to uh, try and be better, not having to try and impress you somehow or come with a bunch of qualifications or credentials to you, but simply coming humbly asking for forgiveness we find that your forgiveness is freely given and Lord, we each do that whether we've done that many times before or whether we've never done it again we've never done it before we do it right now lord jesus come forgive us thank you you're faithful and just you forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness now we want to celebrate that by coming to this table and eating the bread and taking the wine thank you for your body broken Thank you for your bloodshed. Thank you that we can be part of that, part of this incredible story that spills down through the ages to us today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.